Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. My name is Alex, I'm one of your hosts, and with me as ever is... Alaric. Hello Alex. Hooray! Yay! Hooray! <laughs> uh, okay, good. Good evening. Hello. Uh, how's it doing? How are you going? I'm doing alright. I've been making mechanical angel wings for yes, myself. Yes, you have. I've been sending you some updates. You have. Did you invent that joint? Did you still... I, I, by invent, I don't mean like, are oh, you the first person ever? But I mean, like, did you see that joint somewhere? I mean... I saw it on an umbrella. I, I've been designing wings that will fold out and then fold back up again. Uh, I'm going to a, a festival in about two weeks. And I've decided I want to go as an angel. I've been doing some woodworking to craft some wings. But the design was based on how an umbrella unfolds. Yeah, I guess it would be. Yeah, Your main problem now is feather sourcing. Well... Uh, I set some of my students a homework of bring me all the feathers you can find. <laughs> That's not a homework. <laughs> what? That's just using yes, your students as servants. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm a teacher, so I have access to the resource of students doing things for me. Okay. Yeah. They're Fine. eager. They, they love it. Right. Um, but I've decided I'm not going to go for real feathers. I've got some wallpaper, which is nice and textured, and I'm going to make fake feathers. You'll have to find something to do in the classroom with the feathers I, I, I can use them for something but it's like been a nice project air resistance at work I've been I'm taking up some engineering courses next year for the first time ever so I've been um, a maths teacher for the last five years yeah but now I will be maths and engineering teacher wow so I've I spent the last couple of days with my nose in an engineering textbook reading up about uh, beams bending and shearing and that kind of thing Alaric sent me a, a text saying what the hell these words mean <laughs> What is radius of gyration? <laughs> what is the second moment of... Yeah. Second moment of area. Moment I know how to area. do the integrals. I don't know what it means. I, I seriously do not like saying this. But you know how F equals MA? <laughs> Why do you not like saying that? I did my whole third year dissertation on how F does not equal MA. <laughs> um, but you know how F equals MA? Yep. It's just that. Okay. So the, the moment of rotation of like an object is the so f equals ma uh, in rotation land is torque equals moment of rotation times angular acceleration okay this is the same sort of thing yep for rotating planes and big objects you have to do these extra things where you do these big integrals things like that it's all very exciting it's nice to be learning again at school exactly exactly i promise hand on heart that when i find my old laptop in my parents' house, I will get my third year dissertation off it, and we'll do a section on the algebraic history of Newton's second law. Okay. This is like the peak of your academic knowledge. This is the cutting edge of someone who's looked through a whole load of historical textbooks and seen how people write about Newton's second law. I've been reading some Newton recently. Oh yeah? How's he doing? How's, is he alright? I, I hadn't appreciated how much... Um, he had a problem with the uh, the words dynamics versus mechanics. He goes on a long rant about how <laughs> one of those is incorrect. I think it's just putting down his competitors. I think one of his competitors came up with the word dynamics rather than mechanics. It's all just uh, trash talk between them. <laughs> uh, he really laid down sort of con- the concepts of force properly. I imagine he's in favour of mechanics, right? Yep. Yeah, because dynamics is like stuff moving and mechanics is like forces and accelerations. And forces and accelerations is very, very Newton. So 
I mean, not accelerations, changes in momentum. Whatever. Let's, do you want to do some other maths? Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Fractran. This Frank comes Tran. from one of my heroes. Do you want to guess which hero it is? Um, Iron Man. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, there are only a, a couple of people that we mentioned on this podcast, and they're all going to be mentioned today. Um, people, all of them. People that we mention are Martin Gartner, which I'm going to do later, and yeah. John Conway. I love John Conway. He's the best. I know. Um, so, I've got... I, I saw this on r slash math uh, subreddit, and it was just really interesting. It was a programming language he made called Fractran. Uh, I thought it was going to be a programming language, because there is a programming language called Fortran. Ah, uh, is this a, uh, a play on that? This is to do with fractions. So, okay. Fractran. Yeah. It's a language which is not practical. It's just made for kind of curiosity, but it's true and complete and kind of minimalist. The way it works is you have some sort of input, n, and the program is written as just a string of fractions, usually not very many, and uh, it follows two rules. So if you've got um, n as the input, for the first fraction f in the list, for which nf is an integer, replace n by nf. So you've got some sort of number, it's an integer, n. You go along the list, timesing it with each of the fractions until you find one which is an integer. Once you find the first one, n becomes whatever the the product was, nf. Uh, and the second rule is, repeat this rule until no fraction in the list produces an integer when multiplied by n, then halt. So you stop if you don't get an integer. No fraction, or you stop if you don't get an integer because the list is finite in length. Yeah. If your thing was just a third, just a third, 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 and your input was four, yep. then it wouldn't do anything, it would just halt. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You've got a way out of this program. So, we can build a whole lot of interesting things with this. A very simple program would be just the entire list would be 3 over 2. So, like, there's only one fraction in this list. Okay. This is as kind of minimal as it will get. 3 over 2. 3 over 2. This can be used to add. It's an adding algorithm. If you started off with an input of uh, 2 to the A times 3 to the B. 2 to the A times times 3 to to the the B. B. Yeah. What it will give out as an output is 3 to the power of A plus B. We'll, we'll go through the steps in a minute. But the idea here is you input two numbers, A and B. That you're kind of encoding it as a powers. And it will output something, which is the sum of those two numbers. So you can use it to add two numbers together. Won't it just multiply it by 3? So it increases B by 1. And it will decrease A by 1. Yeah. So, as you go through... Uh, let, let's say we start off with um, 6. Okay. As the number, because that's... So it's 1 and 1. 1 times 3 to the 1. Yeah. Yeah. When you pop it in, uh, 6 times 3 over 2 is nine. 9, which is 3 to the power of 2. Yeah. So you've added A and B there. 1 plus 1 is 2. Okay. But let's say we were to do whatever 2 and 2 is. So, 4 times 9, which is 36... Yep, 36 times 3 over 2. 54. Uh, 54 if you times it by 3 over 2 again. Oh, you just keep going? Yeah. But that's an integer, so we should stop. Uh, it's like you can keep going forever. Oh, I things. see. Right, okay, so it just takes all of the powers in the 2, and then it adds them to... Because one by one, it'll transfer them over one at a time. That's it. That's it, exactly. And, so, and then eventually you'll get to A plus B. 
So every right. time you get rid of a factor of two, you add a f- one more factor of three. And so it's it's literally just adding those two things together. I see. Often the outputs that you're getting along the way with these things are not interesting. And you can get a huge list of numbers, but some of them along the way are kind of the outputs. You can consider the rest as um, just like program working. We'll, we'll go through the multiplier algorithm in a minute, but some of the things that they've created... I've got a list here of 14 fractions, all of which are either one or two digit numbers on both the numerator and the denominator. And it produces all the primes. Hmm. Which, I, there's only 14 fractions here. Um, it's just kind of minimalist. But the way it does it, it spits out lots of other numbers as well. But the powers of two, as you go along, are two to the power of prime numbers. So it gives you two to the two, two to the three, two to the five, two to the seven, etc. Yeah. So if you only look at the powers of two their power is the prime numbers in order with no other numbers generated. Like the, the no other two to the power of non-primes. Okay. Um, quite how that algorithm works, I don't know. It's, uh, and, and why it's finite in length as well is uh, a little beyond me as well. I'd imagine it's probably not. I'd imagine like that covers you from like one to, I don't know. No, I, I, I think it is finite. I, I think if we look at the multiplying algorithm... It will give us a bit of a clue as to how these things work. Okay. The way that you create loops. Because you can create loops in these things. So, the multiplication algorithm is a list of six numbers. And you put in an input of 2 to the A times 3 to the B. So, once again, you're kind of... The way that you're inputting things is as powers. And it will produce an output of 5 to the A times B. You've kind of inputted it as powers. It's outputted the product of those things, as, again, as a power. The algorithm itself, it's 455 over 33, which is the largest fraction in there. 455 over 33. That's a funny number. Then They're both funny numbers. 11 over 13, 1 over 11, 3 over 7, 11 over 2, 1 over 3. You can think of these things as they're mostly prime. Some of them are not. Some of them are multiplying a couple of numbers together. Like 33 is 3 times 11. Every time you times by one of these numbers you're getting rid of a factor of whatever was on the bottom and you're adding a factor of whatever was on the top. Yes. The way this algorithm works is you've kind of got um, two states. You've got state A and state B. Yep. And we're going to be transferring between those things. What's going to happen is you've got your input 2 to the A times 3 to the B. We're going to be repeatedly adding. You're going to be adding together the powers of 3 the powers of 2 times. Yes. So it's like you're going to uh, store the powers of two somewhere else. You can store them as some other power along the way. And so imagine you were adding the powers of three to themselves once. As you do that, the powers of two, you're going to be storing somewhere else so you can reuse them. So imagine you were adding them to the powers of, say, seven. Then you're going to, with the powers of seven, every every time you've added it on, they will be the same power as the powers of two you can restock the powers of 2 later on with all the ones from the powers of 7 and then do it again. It's almost like you're creating a clock of how many times you've done this. And then when they're the same, then you can... Then you've got a halt. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of like how baby's first algorithm in computer science works for multiplication anyway. When you get asked to make make a function that multiplies two numbers without multiplying them. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of the same, but you're doing it, you know, with like powers of stuff instead of variables. Yeah, it's just a store. It's a way of encoding the numbers because the primes all kind of separate out. Factorization is unique. It's just a way of making sure these things don't combine with each other. 
And so once you have the ability to create loops, you can do anything that you would normally be able to do in programming. It's one of these, they call them esoteric programming languages. They're ones which uh, are created not for practical use, but just kind of for intrigue. Like, yes. this is possible. We, we often talk uh, about, um, say, creating true and complete things in Conway's Game of Life, and it's kind of a similar thing. Yeah. It's nice when you have a system which you can encode the right amount of information, you can make loops, you can make logic gates, and with that you can do everything else. Yeah, all this all this sort of weird stuff. Have you did you know that um Magic the Gathering was Turing complete? <laughs> no, go on. So I'm not gonna explain exactly how it works, but I'll send you the link after we'll maybe we'll put the link in the show notes. But somebody devised a method by which they could, in a normal game of magic, provided there were two cooperative players who wanted to do it. Yep. Uh, they could create a Turing complete system involving like tapping cards or dealing damage or something like that and they have like, like loads of copies of a single creature that they've made with a certain spell they they lay out the sequence of how to um you know which spells to cast in order to in order to set things up and then uh, and then and then how it ends up but yeah i love these kind of uh, breaking the game mathematical uh, papers um yeah sometimes you'll get uh, articles where people have created the amount of damage in a turn which is greater than graham's number or that kind of thing and it's right yes <laughs> it's just crazy loops some of the stuff yeah and some of the stuff in magic is non-trivial like what's the what's the highest amount of damage you can do that's non-infinite and <laughs> things like that i remember sending you a message at one point being uh, talking about sizes of infinity cardinalities and talking about how you could uh, go above aleph null in damage oh, yeah. in the turn yeah yeah <laughs> So I've got something that I think maybe you'll already know about, but that's good because I want you to help me with it. Okay. Here's a sequence. Can you tell me what's going on? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one nine oh, one nine one, one nine two, etc. etc. one nine nine, one eight oh, one eight one, one eight two, one eight three, etc. etc. one eight nine, one seven oh, one seven one. Yeah? I don't know what this is. And then blah 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 blah. One one oh, one 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 etc etc one one nine, uh one oh oh one oh one. What I was doing there was counting up in base negative ten, <laughs> and I kind of thought that's such a simple thing that maybe you already knew about negative bases. No, I haven't explored this. You haven't considered it. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> so, the nice thing about base negative ten is that it still works. You can still represent all the numbers appropriately. So, uh, going along the digit places, the rightmost is the units still. Yes. The next that's... most is the powers of minus 10. It's the, yes, not the powers, but yeah. the. So, it would be minus 10's place. The minus 10's place. The, the next, next is place the hun- is the hundreds. The hundreds. The next is the minus thousands place. Okay. So, going along the numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 190. How does 190 work? Because it's 1 times 100 plus 9 times minus 10. <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. And then 11 is 191, because it's 100, plus minus 90, which gets you 10, plus 1, which gets you 11. <sighs> so, all the numbers are, are found. Like, if you were to write out the list of these uh, base minus 10 numbers and yep. the base 10 numbers... Yep. It's the same list of numbers. Each occurs once and only once. 
So mm-hmm. There's a bijection between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does base minus two work? Because I, I think twos seem to be the, the way to analyse like how a base functions. Yeah. So, the nice thing about this as well yep. is that it doesn't need negative numbers. So let's say you're trying to do minus one. That would just be 19 in base negative 10. Okay. Because it's minus 10 plus nine which is minus one. And so when you say base negative two, that's actually very interesting because I found out about this, again, through sort of something to do with computing because it means that you can store all the numbers from negative a certain amount to positive a certain amount in a single positive number. Okay. And so that's an interesting feature of this is that there are no negative numbers in base negative 10. I see. You can represent the integers, all the integers, including the negative integers, with positive numbers. That's cool. So... All of the integers have been mapped to the natural numbers, the positive integers. Yes, all the integers are mapped to the natural numbers. And then I suppose zero just goes to itself. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So do you want to count up in base negative two? Yeah, I, I'm still not fluent in this. This is... um. That was the thing. So this is what I was going to bring is like, I thought you already knew about it. And then I was going to go, well, how do I add stuff and multiply stuff? Because <laughs> I'm really struggling. No, I'm interested. It'll go one... And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then two is. So if we think about what happened with um, doing ten in base ten, yeah. we went up to the next place, the hundreds, and then took away like nine lots. So on this one, we go up to the next place, which is four. Oh, sorry, two. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to find two, not not three, aren't we? Yeah, yep. two is one one zero. Oh. Three is one one one. So one lot of four minus one lot of two. Plus one lot of yeah. one. You had an open zero on the far right, so you could just tick that up by one. Yeah. Four is one oh oh. Yeah. It's just like normal. Five is of course one oh one. Six, of course, because this is because it's negative eight is the next. So it's one negative two four negative eight. It's negative eight plus four plus. It's the interaction of the positives and the negatives which is interesting. Like yeah, if you're really dealing difficult. with. Ones and fours and sixteens, like they're all positive. They work exactly the same. The numbers are identical to their positive base counterparts. Yeah. And if you were dealing strictly with the negative ones, if you're dealing with your minus twos and minus eights, it's just the negative version of those kind of things. It's the kind of it's the ones in between which are the hard ones to figure out. Yeah, it's a total nightmare. Um, right. Hold on. I'm going to write down what the the tools that we have available to us. We have a one. We have a minus two. It's almost, it's like countdown, right? We've got a four, we've got a minus eight, we've got a 16, and I don't think we'll need much more than that. Oh, this one's easy. It's 16 minus eight minus two, because minus eight minus two is is minus 10. So it's 16 minus 10. Yep. To get, yeah. So it's that's one, one, zero, one, zero. One, one, zero, one, zero. So to, ooh, yeah. And then the next one is one, one, zero, one, one. Now, I see a kind of thing emerging here where in order to get two below a, a certain power, let's say you have a certain number that's, that's positive in the natural numbers, yep. and you want to get two below it, you add positive power above it, and then you add all the negatives you have underneath it. I found an algorithm here for converting numbers into negative bases. Okay. Um, so it gives an example of converting the number 146, so the, the normal decimal 
146 into what he calls nega ternary. So, <laughs> yes. minus 3. Uh, so, nega binary would be minus 2. Okay. It's just done with a whole lot of division and working out remainders. 146 divided by minus 3 is minus 48 remainder 2. The remainder is the bit that we're collecting here. That's the bit yep. we care about. And minus 48, if you divide that by minus 3, you get 16 remainder 0. 16 divided by minus 3 is minus 5 remainder 1, and so on. You keep going down. If you read off those remainders, you had 20112. Reverse them, so kind of reading up the page, yeah. is the negaternary representation. So 21102. So that algorithm is robust. That, that works for everything. That works for every negative base. Yeah. So let's do one. Let's say we want to represent 2,457 in minus 10. Okay. 2,457 divided by negative 10 yep. is negative 245 remainder 7. Okay. Yep. So we write. We need both of those numbers. One carries on for doing the division. One yep. is the remainder that we care about. Okay. Right. Minus 245 yep. divided by minus 10 is... 20, oh, this is... Hmm. 24 remainder 24 5. 24 remainder 5. But this is this is literally just pulling out each digit one by one. Which is the nice thing about decimal, right? Well, so let's do 10. I was trying to represent 10 in minus 10. And 10 divided by minus 10 is minus 1 remainder 0. Which isn't what we got. We got 190. Hmm. I'm not sure how much uh, on the edge of maths we are here. Yeah. I'm reading on Wikipedia here on the um, negative bases thing that the person that invented it. So Vittorio Grunwald gave algorithms for performing addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, root extraction, divisibility tests, and radix conversion. Nice. He went all the way. So uh, this is 1885. 1885. <laughs> nice. But there's a couple of people who independently like rediscovered negative bases. It's obviously something people have played around with in the past. I remember yeah. playing around with fractional bases in the past. I saw once like base golden number, which I didn't. I never really understood. I imagine just all the numbers were hideous. Yeah, you'd think so, right? What's base i like? Oh wait, no, it has it has a modulus of one, so that's not going to work. But base two i, like, it's not going to work in the same way that base one doesn't work. Right. Yeah. But base two i, it feels like if going from positives to negatives, we're kind of then rotating around 180 degrees on our argon diagram each time. So by doing it by 2i, it's like we have fourfold symmetry. Well, not symmetry, fourfold rotation going on. So in the same way that the bases in the negative one, each digit is flipping between being positive and negative, in 2i, it'd be flipping between four different states. Yeah, and so if you think about it on the argon diagram, uh, you're, you're going to need negative numbers for this. Um, yeah. 2i is going up by 2. The next one is negative 4 which is going left by 4. Yep. And then the next one is negative 8i, which is going down by 8. Yep. And the next one is um, positive 16, which is going to the right by 16. And so these big jumps is all you have to play with to get to any any point. So I wonder whether it's complete, like whether you can get any integer. Um, any integer? It feels like these jumps are too big that it would skip some along the way. Yeah, I think it looks like it's skipping them. Just on the argon diagram in terms of if you draw out the grid. So let's try ourselves then. Let's let's try and work it out ourselves. So Okay. Um I quite like base ten. Sorry, base negative ten. Yep. Because I feel like 
that would be a bit more intuitive for us. So here's the thing. If I was trying to add 10 and 10 in real, yep. I'd, I'd, get, I'd get 20. If I was trying to add 10 and 10 in negadecimal, I'd be adding 1 I know and 1 I know, and I'd get 180. So it's a pretty complex algorithm if you're just using the decimal representation yeah. of these bases. It almost feels like you need to... Like, the algorithm just involves converting back and then reconverting. I was kind of hoping there'd be something you could do yeah, in I mean, the nega layer. Uh, decimal is just our uh, our surface. Like, there's nothing intrinsic about decimal which is uh, that, that makes it real. It's like, that's our GUI for uh, analysing numbers. But the numbers exist without us forming them in decimal. Yeah. You know that thing that we always used to say, which was that every base is base 10 in that base? It's still true in this one. Yeah. Which is nice. And I'm thinking about that 190 plus 190 equals 180 thing, and it's nothing seems right about it. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so bizarre. This is why I, I wanted I wanted help, because I kind of assumed that you'd, uh, you'd done it. Because it was just mind-bending. It's like, do you remember when we, talk about, when we talked about larks and quarry on, uh, in terms of sort of where to put commas in large numbers? And that was the Indian system, which had like five and then two, 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 two. Or like yep. three, then two, 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 two. And that was mind-bending to me. This is even more mind-bending than that. Yeah. <laughs> Go on then. What, what, what are his algorithms? Are they written uh, down somewhere? Oh, I, I didn't look. Do you have a JSTOR account? No, but I just realized I was making a big mistake when we were trying to convert numbers earlier. I was doing positive remainders, ah. but but if you divide two, four, five, seven yep. by minus ten, you get yeah. Which way does the remainder have to go? Which way does the remainder go? Yeah. So if we look at the one four six algorithm, which way does you, it go on there? You get minus two four five. Oh, actually, you know what? The last digit's always going to be the same, so that's fine. Like the 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 units are always going to match. Okay. Yep. And so, yeah, that makes sense. So it is minus 245 remainder 7. That's cool. But then minus 245 divided by minus 10 is not 24 remainder 5. Yep. It's going the other way. It's 25 remainder 5. Yes. Counting kind of down rather than up. And so then dividing 25 by minus 10, you get minus 2 remainder 5. And then dividing minus 2 by minus 10, you get 0... No, you get 1 remainder 8. Because 1 times minus 10 is minus 10, plus 8 is minus 2. So actually that is should be 8557. Five, so 2457 five, should be 8557. Five, five, this uh, whole episode of our podcast is us doing, defining addition in loads of different weird ways. I Using fractrack <laughs> negative bases. I think we may have dived deep enough into this. Is there anything you want to, to get out further before we move on? We found an algorithm here for adding in nega binary. It's pretty weird. <laughs> so uh, you write your two numbers uh, over each other, like you're doing addition at a primary school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You add them, and every time a carry happens, so you take it to the next place, you also take it to the place to the left of that. Mm. So if you did um, 1 plus 1 which would be 10 in binary, you would put uh, a 1 over the next place and the place after. Yeah. It's kind of got a lag so of 2. So it, kind of, it kind of works to the left and the right, right? 
Oh no, when you're adding, you go from the right hand side and you move to the left, yeah. don't you? So, and then the carry, uh, and it shoots up, so you have this extra layer and they, it fires carry diagonally. Yep. It's very interesting. So, that must work with 10s as well, right? Yep. So, let's say I'm adding 190 and 190. So, 0 plus 0 is 0. Great. Wait, hold on, I'm doing it with the paper thing. Yeah. So, yep. 0 plus 0 is 0. Great. 9 plus 9. 9, nine is 8. 18. So, we have the 8 in that place, which is what we wanted. Yeah. And we also carry our one to the next place and yeah. the place after. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Maybe this doesn't work in. in yeah, maybe there's some sort of other algorithm for it. I've only found the uh, negative binary one. It's but. funny we keep finding these ones that seemingly apply. I I think the um the dividing by minus ten thing does work though. Um, do you, do you have a calculator converter? Because as far as I can tell, two four five seven in negadecimal is eight five five seven. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll just let me just check that then. Or do I need to just put a one at the end of? Oh, it's all very strange. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult. Yeah. I guess this is like when you work when you find ima- imaginary numbers for the first time, and it takes your brain like three weeks to work out what in God's name is going on. Um, yeah. At the moment, we're not fluent in the thing, so we're trying to desperately convert back into things that we know. Yeah. But if you are. Uh, in this system, presumably it's all nice and consistent and you just know the rules. It's like trying to play tennis with a badminton wrist action. You're just going to break your wrist. Base 2i is definitely a thing. Oh, really? Quarter imaginary base, it's called. It's got its own name. Nice. And it's got some beautiful illustrations on the Wikipedia page, but I don't know. I, this will time, take time to digest. So I... Yeah, maybe we'll come back to this. Yeah. We'll follow up in a, in a future episode once we uh, once we know how to add and subtract and multiply and negadecimal will be fluent masters of numbers it'll be great so this quarter imaginary base um the base 2i was an invention of donald knuff the computer guy which is a fantastic link because the next problem we're going to do is by one of his friends called scott kim wow yeah that is a fantastic link they are friends um thought so yeah. it, Donald Knuth actually um, voiced in on, uh, some opinions on the, the next problem we're going to look at. Hmm. Um, yeah, Donald Knuth awesome. special. Snakey. Snakey returns. I was reading an article by the big MG, Martin Gartner, and he was writing about uh, polycube snakes. The idea being that it's a, it's a snake which was composed of a whole lot of unit cubes. Yes. A snake can be infinite in length, like, that's, that's fine. Or it can have two ends, or it could have one end, like a, a half line. Um, imagine you're in 2D for a minute. Let's just take it down into being squares. Imagine you've got an infinite plane to fill. How many snakes do you need to fill the entire space? We're going to define a, a snake here as being a, a whole lot of squares next to each other, where it can't touch itself again. It can touch the corners if you want, but we don't want an old part of a snake and a new part of a snake next to each other, like creating a square or something. Hmm. So a snake can be in a singular spiral, yep. and that can, that can lay out a plane, but yep. unfortunately that still leaves us with the same answer as if the snake was length one, which is an infinite number. So go with the spiral thing. If you yeah. imagine decomposing the entire 2D plane into spirals... Oh, 2D plane? Yeah. We're going to go to 3D in a minute. 
Okay. Well, with 2D, you can do it in one. So, we can't have a snake laying next to itself. Oh, it can't. So it can't even touch itself. It can touch itself at a corner, but we don't want an old part of snake and a new part of snake laying next to each other, creating like a, a big square, like a 2 by 2 square. Oh, in that case, it'll be 2. Yes. If you kind of decompose it into two spirals, kind of figure and ground of each other, you could fill the entire plane with two of them. The problem in 3D is a lot less obvious, like in that it's unsolved still. Yeah. So Scott Kim, of mathematics fame, he was a big person into ambigrams. He's mentioned quite a lot in Gödelesche Bark. Came up with this problem and did some proofs on it. He's got some bounds, so you definitely can't do it with one snake. Like that That's obvious, because you couldn't have a snake next to itself. And he proved that four was definitely enough. Like you definitely don't need five. But he was unable to disprove both three or even two snakes. Like, it is still open that uh, it could be two snakes filling the space. Just a really interesting, intricate spiral method yeah. in 3D. Mm. Some big fractally thing. One snake is the, the figure and one snake is the ground. Together they partition the space. It's a hard problem to get your mind around, like, to know how to start finding bounds on this thing. Well, I can think that perhaps it might be eight snakes. That's kind of how... I'm envisioning a, a two by two by two. And then them going, or and then them sort of stretching out in a base, because... I, I'm sort of imagining rotational symmetries because you kind of imagine that it would have to have some kind of rotational symmetry. Yeah. Um, so you're starting with like a two by two by two cube. Each one is the head of one of the snakes. And yeah. And they're, they're spiraling outwards. And they're doing something that has that has that level of rotational symmetry. So we, we definitely know we can do it in four. But quite what that looks like it's really hard to imagine. I can't find anything on the internet about the actual solution of it. Hmm. Um, what I want here is a picture of where I can just stand back and go, oh, yeah, I see. It's, yeah, totes. it's that sort of fractal. Yeah. I know that this problem, they found a way with two snakes we can fill a finite area. Okay. But doing the infinite, it's like every time you get to a certain level, the algorithm for generating it changes slightly. Right. It's like non-self-symmetric. But that's kind of unsatisfying. Because it feels like if you can do it in a finite way, you can do it in an infinite way. Yeah. I think pretty much everyone that has worked on this problem is uh, convinced that it isn't possible with two. They just haven't proven it. I see. But three. Three. Three yeah, is, is odd, right? Because dividing the plane, you can't just imagine your nice four quadrants being divided into three of them. Can't your paper disproving three just be like the word three and then a disdainful emoji? <laughs> like, there's no way it's going to be three. Come on. I can kind of imagine it being free if you've got two doing the bulk of the work and you've got a kind of imagine, uh, an extra one mopping up. Can I read you a, a lovely little anecdote from Martin Gardner here? Yes. <laughs> so, from Martin Gardner. I once had the pleasure of explaining the polycube snake problem to John Horton Conway, the Cambridge mathematician now at Princeton University. When I concluded by saying Kim had not yet shown that two snakes could not tile three-dimensional space, Conway instantly said... But it's obvious that, he checked himself mid-sentence, stared into free space for a minute or two, then exclaimed, It's not obvious. <laughs> I have no idea what passed through Conway's mind. I can only say that if the impossibility of filling free space with two snakes is not obvious to Conway or to Kim, it's probably not obvious to anyone else. Hmm. So even Martin Gardner, one of my idols, has his own idols. Yeah, in Conway. <sighs> what a guy. <laughs> Quite a lot of the time, you don't know what your academic idols sound like. Yeah. 
I think it's always disappointing when you do find I tell you, Roger Penway sounds exactly how you think he sounds. <laughs> but but everybody else. <laughs> like most people, most people don't know how um, Einstein sounds like. But there's, there's video of him talking. He kind of sounds a bit like how you'd imagine too. The, the one that surprised me most when I finally watched an interview with him was Isaac Asimov, who I'd probably read 30 books of by that point. And then he, I confronted it with this kind of 1960s grandfatherly sort of character. It was not what I expected for this pioneer of space. Yes, yeah, all very kind of like this and British and things like that, but he, of course he was American. Yeah. Is there else stuff to be talked about about the snake thing? Probably not. It's an unsolved problem. Mm. If someone can find a picture of this, I'd be very grateful. I, w- I want to see the four snake solution. Yeah. What would that be? It would have to. It would have to be very selective towards a particular direction, because there are six directions in three D space. Yep. But there are four directions in a plane, so maybe it starts out by doing something in a plane and then twists itself around. The fact that there are six directions, three different dimensions in 3D space, makes three snakes seem um, almost justified. One for each dimension. Yeah. Um, Scott Kim came up with a generalisation, like a guess, that for n dimensions it would take two open brackets, n minus one, close brackets, snakes. But a complete guess. So if n equals three... That'd be four snakes. Yes. So two right. D two snakes, three D four snakes, four D six snakes, etc. It sounds like a particularly vexing problem um, that kind of unfortunately doesn't appear to have any particular real use case. So isn't going to have a bunch of people trying to jump on it and solve it. It's kind of nice if you can reduce the dimensionality of something. So uh, imagine you've got a two D space. If you can do a space-filling curve, something like the uh, the dragon curve or that sort of thing, yeah, you can say where you are in 2D space by going how far along a 1D line. It's like you converted 2D into 1D. Yeah, and then with this method, you can just assign any particular point in space to a single number. Two numbers, one saying which snake you're on. Yeah, one which snake and one of how far along the snake. So you've reduced 3D into 2D. Yeah. Which, if you then mapped that onto 1D by doing the same thing again, because you can represent which snake you are and how far along the curve you are as a 1D thing. How? Again, doing the space-filling curve, you could plot that on a 2D graph. So oh. you have the uh, which number snake you are axis and how far along the snake you are axis. Yeah. That's a 2D grid. Yeah. And you can fill that with a 1D line. Yes, you could. And so again, you could map 2D into 1D. So like any number of dimensions, you could map down. The numbers would be immense. Though. It's kind of holographic in a way. Yeah. There's bijections between all these things. It's fine. Hmm. Yeah. I, I like your uh, comment there of holographic. It's, yeah, it's projection. Yeah. I've never really approached holograms. As in, obviously there's just straight up holograms, um, which are interesting and cool by themselves but then there's also holographic physics which is it's a cosmology thing like the theory that the universe is a projection of a lower dimensional um yep. thing yeah which which helps in some areas of the maths in terms of cosmological stuff the thing about cosmological theories is is the truth is kind of what you experience and so as much as cosmology can say or even as much as physics can say that we're all atoms and so on it's 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 kind of reality is a bit more in, uh, I don't want to get a bit weird about it, but in reality, it's a bit more unfathomable than that. So you you can make all sorts of models, mathematical models. It doesn't mean they're true. The truth is just the truth. Um, and so we have all these concepts of uh, 
so the best theory that we have about anything at all to do with reality is quantum electrodynamics, which which is incredibly, incredibly accurate. But things like space-time and all these other concepts, are, are, they're, they're really good models, but they're not like perfect because they break down in certain ways. So we know that they are just that models. Yep. And maybe they come pretty close to the truth, but just because we have a really good model that says that yeah, that there is a fabric of space-time and, and, and so on doesn't, doesn't mean it's true. It just means that that is the model that is currently most accurate. Um, and so... If somebody says, oh, yeah, yeah, the world, the universe uh, totally maps mathematically onto a holographic system, doesn't mean we're all living in a big hologram. It just means that that's the model that works best. Because we experience 3D, and so, therefore, why not? Why not just think about things in 3D? It's all just different perspectives and ways of thinking about things. Hmm. Yeah. This is getting quite woe, dude. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, we haven't got woe, dude, in a while. (laughs) Not since 20 minutes ago when we were trying to work on the uh, negative basis. (laughs) So, Alex, I've been thinking a bit more about that rod-moving problem from the last episode. Oh, yes, in Rod We Trust. Yeah. Um, we had a, a slightly unsatisfying solution to the final thing. It was great. I don't know what your problem is, but go ahead. Well, we were doing, like, sine of arctan of stuff yeah, and cos of beautiful. arctan of stuff. Beautiful. Uh, I just played around with the trigger bit, and I've got it in a closed form, just using trigger identities. So, R1 was, we had L, the length of it, was a over sine theta plus b over cos theta and we had theta defined just awfully yes uh, so we had tan theta equals cube root of a over b so theta was arc tan of cube root of a over b playing around with it a bit I've got it without any trig at all nice so l is as a bracket a to the two thirds plus b to the two thirds all of that to the power Three over two. Hmm, that's Which, weird. Yeah, it's quite nice. It's quite nice because it has you know something going in one direction, something going in another. It's kind of a bit like how Pythagoras is, you know. Yeah. A, a to the two plus b to the two, close bracket to the power of uh, a half. Yep. Yeah. We talked about how the problem we were doing the two D version of it, like the rod had to stay parallel to the floor as it went yes. around the corner. I worked it out doing the Pythagoras, so to the longest rod you could get around a 3D corner. Yeah. Um, it's less nice. It's just awful. Okay. It's square root of a squared plus b squared plus c squared plus 3 a to the two thirds, b to the two thirds, open brackets, a to the two thirds plus b to the two thirds. Yeah. There's nothing nice going on there. Well, can't you can't you just define your previous length as l two, and then just say that it's square root of one plus l two each squared? Yes. Just nest it. Use a nice variable. It, it's square root of l two squared plus the height of the corridor squared. Yes. Yes. Now, what happens if you get onto issues where you have the corridor approaching is of any rectangle cross section? And the corridor receding is of any rectangle cross-section, and it can re- come in at any angle. Not any angle, any uh, uh, dimension. So it can come in from the left, the bottom, the right, or the top, or straight ahead. That is a further advanced version of the more generalized version of the problem. 
And then of course there's issues where versions of the problem where the angle that you're going around isn't 90 degrees, but that sounds absolutely awful and nothing I want to even go anywhere near. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, I was kind of thinking that maybe it would be nice if we started to do some problems from listeners. Yep. This is an open call to anybody who listens this late in the show. If you have a problem, please send it our way. You know how to find us. We say it at the end of every show how to find us. Um, or even even if you don't have a problem, please think of one and send it to us. I think it would be really cool if we started uh, you know, engaging uh, with the listeners even further by doing their problems as well. Because God knows we're running out of ideas. So <laughs> you might be. I've got a big list. <laughs> yeah, I'm just making fun. <laughs> um, yeah, so please, please reach out with your problems. We've actually had sort of a couple over the course of uh, us recording the show to this point. People have suggested one or two things. Um, that and that's great. And maybe we'll, we will get to those um, because a couple of them have been quite interesting. Uh, so please. Thank you for joining us this week. For new listeners, here's the thing we do at the end of every episode is we describe how satisfied we were with each problem. And so the first thing that we did was... Fractran. Fractran. Conway's uh, programming language. Yeah, pretty satisfied. What did we do again? (laughs) We talked about the addition and multiplication algorithms. We mentioned the prime algorithm. Oh, yeah. I like that I understood the addition one. And that's I'm completely satisfied with that level of understanding. I, I would like to try popping some numbers into the multiplication one to kind of see it in action. Like Yes. I feel the way that you get to grips with an algorithm is just crunch through some numbers for it. Yeah. Uh so five. Yeah. Five as well. Uh the next thing we did was base negative ten. It it makes me feel slightly uneasy with the whole world thinking about negative bases and imaginary bases. Yeah, I feel like I'm staring into a a new frontier that I didn't know existed. It's like just when you think you've got the world sorted because you understand the complex plane and everything like that. And then just when you think that you're a very smart physicist because you totally understand metrology and you understand that all units of measurement are completely arbitrary and, you know, that a meter doesn't even really exist, then, you know, that's interesting too. And you think you think you have everything completely under your thumb and and you have a full understanding of measurement metrics how we represent things and then all of a sudden base negative 10 comes around and you're like i don't even know how to count anymore when i was just thinking of it as a a surface a just a transposition of normal numbers nice safe base positive 10 numbers into something weirder it was just a disguise i felt safe and then the realization that our number system is no more, no more real than the other one. They're both. If anything, it might be even be a better number system because it doesn't have this fudge of negative numbers existing. Except in the base, yeah. Oh, uh, I don't know. But, I feel like yeah. I've stepped over the uh, the barrier reef, and I'm just looking down at the depths just of the ocean, staring at the void. <laughs> so you realize how little you know, truly. <laughs> how fragile base reality is. So, uh, two. Yeah, because we didn't get anywhere. I think I managed to learn how to maybe convert into it, but what good is conversion from one fragile filigree gossamer thread <laughs> into another? It's like um, learning French, but always just converting it back into English to do your thoughts, as yeah. opposed to thinking in French. 
I'm going to at least say three because I worked that out. But wow! And so then Snakey came back. Yep. And the next one we did was space filling snakes. Yep. And general hero worship. Yeah. Um, we didn't really get anywhere. One. No. Thank you for telling me about space filling snakes. Yep. Also one. Yeah. I liked the porting of dimensions down into lower dimensions. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. Good. Well, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, I had a good time. It's very hot. I had to close all my windows uh, in order to not have the noise come in. And so I am roasting. So those windows are opening the moment that we've finished recording. Uh, because it is a, it's been a heat wave continuously in the UK for the last, like, two weeks. It's been great. Football's been good. Football's been good. Football is coming home. Here. No, this is gonna cut. Yeah, this is gonna like come out tomorrow after we lose to Sweden. Um, <laughs> but football has come as far as we can tell at ten thirty-five on. Oh, wait, before the Sweden game in the evening of Friday, <laughs> the sixth of July, before the Sweden game, football is coming home as far as we can tell. So um, it's been good. We're not getting any rain until like Thursday. Um, Everything's getting a bit dirty in London. It needs a good wash. Uh, the ground's getting a bit filthy. And yeah, everything everything is good. Everything is nice. So, how to contact us. I spoke before about how we want to hear from you. Uh, go to oddsandevenings.com. There is a form there. Uh, if you hit contact, uh, you can fill it in and it will land in the right in- inbox that we check. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at, at oddsandevenings. You can find me personally... Uh, on Twitter at, at speakmouthwords and uh, Alaric just sort of looks at the odds and evening stuff yep um, uh, we have a subreddit that you can use if you'd like to put stuff there um, might be quite good for putting sort of problem submissions there but please do try not to answer each other's problems in the comments because we'll see it uh, where else we've got a Facebook somewhere too and uh, hey here's something that we haven't done yep Please go on iTunes and uh, and oh, tell us what you, yeah, what you think of the show. Um, we got a review very early on, and we haven't had a review since. So it would be nice to get some reviews if you really like the show. Apparently it helps. I don't know how. Um, and uh, music by David Russell 323 on YouTube, which I haven't said in a while. Go to David Russell 323 on YouTube. He does. He's a much better pianist than I am. We still haven't done anything on music yet. No. I assumed that one of your problems was going to be it. Ah. You're the musician. I am. I've learned about this thing called Negative Harmony recently, so maybe we'll talk about Negative Harmony now that we've done Negative Basses. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now we're thinking about Negative Basses as attached to octaves. Oh, yeah. So Mm. if each octave goes up a pair of two in terms of uh, amplitude... Oh, sorry, no. Frequency. Oh, yeah. Then what happens if you go up by a power of minus two? Oh well, those are just the undertones. Those are, um, you'll be flipping between uh, odd-numbered undertones and even-numbered overtones. Um, oh, okay. there's a whole depth of knowledge about music that I have in my brain that we have not even touched. So uh, maybe I'll try and I'll try and find something to do with music we can do. Okay. Um, in the meantime, let's let's finish this show. Let's stop. Thirty-six times three over two. It's forty-eight.
No, 49.